Hello and welcome to this Blackwell Online podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is painter, designer, and writer Matthew Rice, author of the eponymous Rice's Architectural Primer, a quirky, entertaining, and beautifully illustrated introduction to architecture for those of us who need help telling a pediment from a tympanum. Matthew introduces the grammar and vocabulary of architecture in the most painless way. I asked him if he was worried about most of us being illiterate when it came to speaking the language of architecture. Yeah, I think that there's a danger of illiteracy in all sorts of fields. I am scientifically very illiterate. I'm mechanically very illiterate. I think that you know, because there's so much knowledge to get your head around now, and we are all inclined to be quite illiterate about quite a lot of things. And um, so any way of doing some very, very basic literacy training for any of those areas is bound to make one's... You know, I don't think you enjoy things if you, don't, if you can't talk about them. And how far back does your own interest in architecture go? Um, I've always been interested in it. My father dragged me around churches when I was a child. I became more interested in it at school, and um, I think it's, it's just always been something that I find very gripping. I was thinking about it last night, funnily enough, staying in a landmark trust railway station at Alton mm. Towers. And opposite the road from this was one of the lodges to Alton Towers designed by Pugin. And I had last year read that very good book about Pugin. And I looked at it and I thought, how one of the extraordinary things about architecture as opposed to building is that it does crystallize people's ideas. It's a com complete mm. resolution. And the idea that you can actually look at somebody's complete resolution, more or less unchanged, a hundred mm. or two hundred or three or five hundred years later, I think is a really exciting idea. I think that's probably one of the things I find most exciting about it. Now, as, as we've said, you want to introduce people to the names of parts of buildings. That's one of the, the, the motives, to show people that there is a language of architecture and it's made up of, of vocabulary. How would you then like them to use that knowledge in order to, to be synthesized into something greater than the naming of the parts? I think that, you know, at the risk of being prescriptive, uh, I mean, I think that would risk being prescriptive, and that I think only that if you are interested or might become interested, then vocabulary is what you need. I think that mm. what one hopes is then, when someone is reading a description of a building or talking to someone else about it, they, uh, you know, you've got the, the, the weaponry to, to do that with, you've got the equipment to do it. I mean, this book is very much not, it isn't a polemic, it doesn't have um, a particular line on anything, nor need it do, mm. and it's far from erudite on any other subject it's dealing with. It, it does have a little bit of background on each period, because I think that without that, it's very hard to make head or tail of any of it. And I also think that some kind of historical note is useful, because for some people it'll be the only book they're reading about architecture, so you might as well get down a few salient points and put them over. Mm. But I think the idea is to say that in an overall interest or an incipient interest, then this is just there to give you a bit of basic knowledge. One characteristic of the book, of the book is that it's extremely reader-friendly and inviting and, and visually immediate. And I wondered if you thought that, you know, previous writing in architecture, I mean, thinking of someone like 
Sir Nicholas Pevsner, which is you know, an incredible project and admirable in many ways, but it is also rather daunting. And if in a way people have been scared off architecture because they feel they do have to have more specialist knowledge than they, than they can readily acquire in order to talk about it with some understanding. Yes, I mean, Pevsner's um, buildings of Britain is extraordinary and it's, it's a reference work. This is a primer, not a reference work. Um, mm. And I think there's an inclination to assume things. Pevsner specifically does assume a knowledge, although all the volumes do have a glossary in them. Mm. Um, it's a relatively dry piece of equipment. You know, he did bring a very scientific approach to the study of architecture. I've not got a very scientific approach to it. I've also, you know, been doing this, looked at, you know, several other glossaries over the decades. And um, there is an inclination to dryness. There's also an inclination either to using photographs, which we could talk about in a second because I think that they mm. have a problem, but also using source material. And source material is obviously wonderful, but I think it distracts. I think it's, a, um, I think it's an issue of its own. And I think that if you have a lot of differing source material, you know, starting with 16th century engravings and going on to mm. 18th century drawings and then tackling 19th century watercolour drawings, all that kind of thing, it does make a beautiful book, but I think it adds another layer into the difficulty of learning. And so I have tried, in the way I've illustrated the book, I definitely have tried to be accessible, as you say, but I've tried mm. to make the illustrations particularly accessible. Um, and one of the ways I've made them accessible is by them having a relatively schematic approach and having one common style from start to finish. So the whole book um, yes. reads as one document. And I think that that does make the learning of it easier. I think that we're chopping from idea to idea visually is probably a blockage, a potential mm. blockage. The book is, is very, very coherent in its visual style. And I wondered, when you set about approaching each period, how did you how did you boil it down, as it were? Because you're trying to communicate the essences rather than, rather than do illustrations of particular buildings in very fine detail. You're trying to extract some kind of essence. Yes. No. I think I've, what I've tried to do is to go for the characteristics of each period. And obviously, there are common characteristics to three or four periods or all periods. You know, there are windows and everything. There are bays. There are stories. There are all sorts of things that run all the way through. I've tried to find the things that characterize that period and then explain them. So each period uh, probably emphasizes the things that are particular to it, while not abandoning the bits that are general. But I suppose that's how I've really tackled what I've featured at each time. And, and again, in the writing of each chapter, I've tried not to give a full and detailed description of the architectural events of the age, but rather to pick out highlights and specific characters or features that do characterize the age as opposed to completely explaining it. I really like the fact that you humanized the illustrations here and there with little figures, people, people interacting with the buildings, just, just enough to, to bring some warmth and humor to, to the whole thing. You're nice. I, I, I have put people in, first of all, because I think that the, you know, the key thing about architecture is, it, is how we define the space around ourselves and given mm that uh, we are the people doing the defining, to leave people out, uh, both in terms of scale and to a certain degree in terms of context, is a bit of a pity. Mm. And also because you know, there's a risk, you do a certain number of doorways, you're just doing more doorways, mm. you might as well put yeah. someone slightly different in each doorway. 
And I don't know why, I've always had a horror of the Letraset figure. You know, the, the, yes. the, the, yeah. the, the walking architect fellow going mm. from one place to another. Um, <laughs> mm. And the kind of non-specific, I loathe the non-specific. I, I think that the, I think platitudes are the great enemy all the time. And you get a lot of platitudes in figures too. I mean, the one I like best is in a big Edwardian door, which is in an office in Covent Garden. And a fellow sitting there on his mobile phone with his cigarette, banished from the office to smoke, <laughs> and talk to his moaning girlfriend. Mm. A, I like it because it's sort of supposed to say that architecture's all around you all the time, and you might not be thinking that the door you go and smoke and phone in is actually got all sorts of relevance and all sorts of features that are interesting. But it's also just to say, you know, the doorway's there, the doorway's where you are, it's all around you. Yes. I think that that's... Yes. So if there's a reason for it, it's that many, it's just to keep people's attention and hopefully make them laugh a bit from time to time. Now, at the back of the book, you have a gazetteer in which you pick out a number of buildings for people to visit region by region in the country. And I wondered how difficult was that to, to come up with your shortlist? It must have been quite a challenge to boil that down. I think that the boiling down is a challenge, not, not the finding. And that, you know, ours mm. is a very Milson country. And mm. even the less populated areas, the Celtic fringes, um, mm. are, in Scotland particularly, has some of the most important architecture in Britain. So there's no mm. great difficulty in finding them. The matter is of boiling them down. There are also areas that do have specific strengths. I mean, the great industrial towns of the north of England are very, very good for, you know, Victorian and Edwardian building. They're not particularly, mm. they're not as good for some of the other periods. But I have no, I didn't find it too difficult. What I wanted to do was to make it representative so that you could see something of each period in each area. And that kind mm. of double entry bookkeeping wasn't too difficult to achieve. It was yes. just a matter of making sure that it did work and you didn't find that there was a great big classical hole in the middle of Wales. Mm. Work. Yes. Um, but it was quite possible to fulfill all areas. I wondered if there were any discoveries that you made as a result of writing this book, buildings you hadn't seen before or buildings you encountered in reality that you had a new view of as a result of, of drawing them or, or something that really sort of surprised you? Yes, oh, definitely. There are buildings that you think you know. I mean, for example, I had driven past Castle Rising in Norfolk, where I have sometimes lived hundreds of times without ever going to visit it. And hmm. um, I thought, ah, well, I need a large Norman building and here's one I can get to quite easily. And I, it made me go and look at it and go and draw it properly. And that was hugely exciting. In fact, several buildings, which I knew from photographs quite well, do look very, very different. When I was about 12, my father, who's a theatre designer, had set me a holiday project of making a scale model of the front of San Miniato in Florence. And I spent a week or so carefully cutting out all the little bits of cardboard for every arch and every arcade and then painting all the marble inlaid front of the building. And um, when I first went there, when I was about 16 with a trip from school, I was astonished to find that there was a huge part of the building that wasn't black and white. It never occurred to me the whole thing wasn't going to be black mm. and white and stripy. And one mm. does get sometimes a very, very two-dimensional idea. Uh, you know, photography is quite a challenging medium to yes. use for buildings because uh, you know it's marvelous and it's quick and it's easy and it gives you a lot of detail but of course you can't go and look more closely when you're looking at a photograph it's much easier if you're looking at the real thing you can look around the yes. corner and see what mm. that meant it's also of course the great thing about drawing the um details is you leave stuff out 
Drawings are yes. marvellously editable medium, whereas photography is is beset with yeah. the sign that says Summerfield or no entry <laughs> or CCTV yes. in operation mm. in this area. And if you're sitting and drawing, you can peel away those accretions and layers of addition mm. that you don't want. And you can, although you are to a degree schematizing the view, yes. you can put over what you want to do much more easily. Mm. In the book, you do advocate that your readers should try to, to draw some of the architecture they see. And I thought that was probably because you haven't seen my rendition of the Cesar Archer Wells Cathedral, which is not a thing of beauty or elegance like your drawing. I don't think it, I mean, I'm sure it's absolutely lovely, but I don't think it needs to be a thing of beauty or of elegance. In fact, I think it can be completely wrong and still be valuable. Mm. I think that what drawing does is to make you sit in front of something for 20 minutes, not two minutes. That is in itself of huge value. And secondly, it makes you parse the building. It makes you um, break it down to its component parts. And yeah. just the process of doing that is a very, very easy way of understanding understanding the building, of understanding the mm. animation of a building. So I think that even the most kind of shaky, blunt pencil on the back of the photograph that you happen to have in your briefcase at the time yeah. is often a way of resolving some of the things. Not resolving. It's often a way of clarifying what you're looking at in your mind. It's just a way of getting your head around a building. And I think that, so, yes, I definitely encourage anybody and everybody, particularly those very bad at doing it, um, <laughs> to do it as much as possible. To persist.